President of Ireland, who shall take precedence over all other persons in the state, and who shall exercise and perform the powers and functions conferred on the President by this Constitution and by law. So runs Article 12 of the Constitution of Ireland. Adopted and enacted by the people at a plebiscite on the 1st of July 1937, the Constitution asserts the right of the Irish people to control their own destiny and, as a corollary, their right to choose their own rulers. Two simple qualifications, of citizenship and of minimum age, are all that are required, as a matter of constitutional right, to make a candidate eligible for election as President of Ireland. Every Irish citizen who has reached his 35th year of age is eligible for election to the office of President. No person may be excluded from Irish nationality and citizenship by reason of the sex of such person. The people elect their president by direct vote. Every man or woman who is entitled to vote in a Doyle election may vote in a presidential election. When only one candidate is nominated, there is not, of course, any ballot. The first president was the unanimous choice of all parties in Doyle and Senate. He was Douglas Hyde. He entered unopposed into office on the 25th of June, 1938. the declaration of the first president of Ireland was made. In English it runs, In the presence of Almighty God, I do solemnly and sincerely promise and declare that I will maintain the constitution of Ireland and uphold its laws, that I will fulfill my duties faithfully and conscientiously in accordance with the constitution and the law, and that I will dedicate my abilities to the service and the welfare of the people of Ireland. May God direct and sustain me. The declaration was made in Irish, of course. In accordance with the Constitution, the declaration of the President may be taken in either Irish or English, but it was scarcely thinkable that Uncreven Evin would use any language other than Irish, for it is with the Irish language that his whole life history is bound, and it was his teaching and his work for the Irish language which shaped so much of Irish history in our time. 1893. The Gaelic League was founded in that year. Its first president, the president who continued to hold office until the eve of that fateful year, 1916, was the son of the Church of Ireland rector of French Park in Roscommon, 
a youth who had spent his boyhood among the Gaelic speakers of the quiet country about Loch Cara, becoming, as Desmond Ryan reminds us, not only a speaker of Gaelic, but one of the Gaelic-speaking people. In Douglas Hyde's wandering over the bogs on a day's shooting and in visits in the homes of the people, he had already begun to collect the old tales and love songs and religious songs of the countryside. He had a natural sympathy and kindliness that made him welcome everywhere. And he was so much one of the people that they were not surprised that he, a Protestant rector's son, prized the old heritage and shared in a round of the rosary round the peat fires, just as he would play a game of cards and drink a glass of whiskey with his friend, Johnny Lavin, old Fenian and his Gaelic tutor, unofficial in chief. It isn't hard to look back over the years and to see, foreshadowed in this first president of the Gaelic League, the man who was his country's unanimous choice as first president of Ireland, the Protestant who was the choice of his Catholic fellow countrymen, the scholar who had held aloof from politics and was yet the choice of men who had so recently emerged from the story of revolutionary politics. Not that Douglas Hyde escaped all criticism during his crusade of a generation and more ago. He attracted, as who did not, the acid-dripping pen of George Moore. But there were many, Lady Gregory amongst them, to offer antidote to Moore's venom. All Hyde's head seemed at the back like a walrus, and the drooping black moustache seemed to bear out the likeness. His volubility was as extreme as a peasant's come to ask for a reduction of rent. It was interrupted, however, by Edward calling him to speak in Irish. And then a torrent of dark, muddied stuff flowed from him, much like the porter which used to come up from Carnacon to be drunk by the peasants on midsummer nights when a bonfire was lighted. Some of his writings were known to me, some translations he had made of the peasant songs of Connacht, and I admired them. They seemed untidily written, the verse and the prose. So the conclusion was forced upon me that in no circumstances could Hyde have been a man of letters in English or in Irish. The leader had absorbed the scholar. So perhaps the language movement is as one chance of doing something. Douglas Hyde stooped down to make an earthenware candlestick. But when he lifted his head, he knew it was not a candle he had lighted, but a star he had discovered. And it is now lighting up all the western sky. That light in the western sky was the guiding light of Hyde's life. When, as first president of Ireland, he broadcast an address to the American people, his thoughts went back to the days when he had campaigned and lectured through the United States to raise funds for the Infant Gaelic League. Tonight, I again speak to you as my country's representative. But this time, I speak with the title, President of Ireland, a title which indicates the great progress which our beloved country has made since then. For myself, I still feel humble, but for my country I feel proud. I feel proud that the age-long struggle maintained by our people has at last borne fruit. I am proud that Ireland's nationhood, which has never been extinguished, although submerged for centuries by external domination, has at last found expression in the form of independent statehood. Though not, it is true, for the whole of our national territory. So the seven years of the term of office of the first president of Ireland passed. He lived in retirement until July 1949. 
and a nation which remembered its debt to him mourned his passing. Let us now praise famous men and our fathers that begat us. The Lord hath wrought great glory by them through his great power from the beginning. Such as did bear rule in their kingdoms, men renowned for their power, giving counsel by understanding and declaring prophecies. Leaders of the people by their counsels and by their knowledge of learning meet for the people, wise and eloquent in their instructions. Douglas Hyde's successor in the presidency was Sean T. O'Kelly. After a contested election in 1945, he entered into office, taking and signing his declaration of office in Irish. From the 1890s to the 1940s, close on half a century of Irish public life lay behind the new president, the pattern of his life history is the pattern of Irish life itself in those 50 years. I was in the Gaelic League, we said, from the year it was founded. 1893, that'd be. It was in 1898 that Shanti O'Kelly joined the League. He was general secretary for a spell later on. 18, yes. That's about as old as Shanti O'Kelly was the year he was sworn into the IRB. He'd been in the IRB for 12 or 13 years when the Council sent him to America in 1914 to Devoy, Colohan and McGarrity of Clannagale to say that Ireland would rise if Europe went to war. Oh, he was well established in the public life of Dublin for years before that. Eight or nine years earlier, he was elected to the Dublin Corporation. He must have been the youngest member of the corporation at that time. The election of 1906, it must have been. Because in 1908, I remember, there was a pilgrimage to Rome... And Sean T. O'Kelly was selected to read an address from the corporation to the Pope in Irish. He was with Arthur Griffith in Sinn Féin and with Porrick Pierce. He was Pierce's staff captain in the GPO in 1916. The committee rooms of the Infant Gaelic League, the secret councils of the IRB, the meeting place of the First Doyle, over which he presided in 1919, the chambers of the Peace Conference in Paris, to which he had been sent as envoy of the Irish Republic, these made the background of the man who, in the June of 1945, was installed as first citizen of Ireland in Oris and Uchtaroyd. Constitution requires that the President shall have an official residence in or near the city of Dublin. The present official residence is Arasanukhtaroin, formerly the Viceregal Lodge. 
at one time the seat of the British Viceroys and later of the Governors General. Formerly the Viceregal Lodge, at one time the seat of the British Viceroys. Well, perhaps that too is part of the pattern. Here they lived, the Right Honourable Nathaniel Clements, who was ancestor of the Earl of Leitrim, the Earl of Hardwick, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Duke of Richmond and Lord Whitworth. In 1893, when the man who was to be in his day the first president of Ireland was, in the foundation of the Gaelic League, initiating what has been described as the most epoch-making event in Irish history, the 62nd Annual Report of the Commissioners of Public Works was solemnly defining as a thing immutable and unchangeable the limits and borders of the manor of the Phoenix Crown Lands and the domains and messuages. The Viceregal Lodge area comprising 180 acres, three roads, 34 perches. The Chief Secretary's Lodge area comprising 75 acres, two roads, 27 perches. The Under Secretary's Lodge area comprising 51 acres, three roads, 23 perches. The Royal Irish Constabulary Depot comprising 10 acres, one road, 24 perches. The most extensive and beautiful of the enclosed domains of the Phoenix Park is that appropriated as the summer residence of the Viceroy of Ireland. So Mr. G. N. Wright enthusiastically recording his impressions away back in 1833. Viceroys and Lord's Lieutenant, who have lived there since Nathaniel Clements built the original house, a small block, three rooms long, in the 1750s, agree with him. Perhaps Maurice Craig hit on one reason why. Here's what he has to say. The popularity with the Viceroys may have been due in part to the architect's success in making it look like a residency or government house somewhere in the colonies thus giving the Viceroy, as he walked between the cypresses, the illusion that he was really abroad. Be that as it may, the White House, it's said to have been a model for America's White House, with its graceful porticos, has a wide and pleasant view of green lawns and quiet parklands circled with formerly trimmed yew trees. One wing has been adapted as a home for the President. In the other wing are the formal state apartments. I suppose all the world over, formal state apartments are, well, formal state apartments. Reception rooms of formal impressiveness, formal portraits looking down from the walls, great glittering candelabra of cut glass dominating high rooms which call for the comings and goings of guests to complete their formal splendor. In the great dining room are two marble fireplaces of really exquisite beauty, and beside them, an inscribed brass plaque. The mantelpieces and grates in this dining room were given in 1812 to the most reverend Dr. Murray, Archbishop of Dublin, by his flock for his residence at 44 Mountjoy Square. On the sale of the building in October 1923, they were transferred therefrom and presented to the Viceregal Lodge by T.M. Healy, first Governor-General, Irish Free State. Well, maybe that isn't quite the whole story. When the Archbishop's old house was being demolished in 1923, the mantelpieces were bought by the then Governor-General, who had them installed in his official residence. But it's easier to install a fixture than to remove it, as even a lawyer so distinguished as T.M. Healy was to discover. When, at the end of his term of office, he proposed to remove the mantelpieces and take them to his private house, the Board of Works challenged his right to remove fixtures. An interesting legal argument this must have been but it seems the one-time Governor-General had the last word, graven in brass. It is against this background of formal impressiveness that the official life of the President is seen by readers of newspapers and by viewers of newsreels. 
Press pictures and radio recordings recall at random one such occasion. The national flag and the presidential standard with its golden harp on a blue ground are flying over Aurus and Uchtheroin. An honour party of military is drawn up before the wide curve of the house. The music being played by the army band for the occasion has an exotic strangeness. Yes, it's the Indian National Anthem. The Indian Ambassador Krishna Menon is presenting his credentials. Under this land of priceless beauty, this jewel in the oceans, this land of the shamrock, for people whose courage and forbearance have added glorious chapters to human history. Endowed with a tradition and a culture which we deeply admire. Hallowed by the sacrifice of our martyrs before whom we stand in reverence. I bring greet, greetings from a far off land, greetings of my government and of our people. To, the, to you, Mr. President, to the government and the peoples of this country. That is the formal occasion, the moment of ceremony. There are other duties of the president, duties of the council chamber and the study. You mean in your Senate and Parliament House, your, your door? No, no, not that. It's, it's laid down in the Constitution that the president may not be a member of either house. Even so, the president does have certain, well, powers and functions in the government. Eh? Well, to be sure he has. The president is, uh, let me see now how I can put it. He's one of the three elements of the Oireachtas, the Doyle, the Senate, and the President. Every bill from Parliament requires his signature before it can become law. And can he refuse to sign a bill, refuse to make it law? Well, he can withhold his signature to a bill if a certain number of members of the two houses of the Parliament claim that the bill is of such national importance that it ought to be put to the vote of the people. As well as that, he can refer a bill to the Supreme Court and ask the court to decide if the bill is in accordance with the Constitution. He does that after consultation with the Council of State. The Council of State? It's an advisory body set up under the Constitution. It's made up of such people as the Taoiseach, the Chief Justice, the President of the High Court, former Prime Ministers. Its job is to consult with the President on certain matters and offer him advice. Matters like calling a meeting of the Doyle or Senate or sending a message to the nation on some matter of national law or public importance. Your president, he's, he's your first citizen, but that doesn't mean he's above the law. It does not. Like every other citizen, he's bound by the Constitution and by law. Of course, he does occupy a privileged position when it comes to the discharge of his presidential duties. He's not answerable to either House of the Oireachtas or to any court of justice in connection with the functions of his office. Of course, there are certain restrictions on a president's actions. For instance, he may not leave the state during his term of office without having the consent of the government. One such occasion arose during the second term of office of President O'Kelly. He was elected unopposed for the second time in 1952. In the final year of his term of office, he visited the United States.
Mrs. O'Kelly, uh, members of your party, ladies and gentlemen, it is indeed a signal honor to welcome here to America the first president of Ireland who has ever visited our shores. And it is particularly felicitous that we can welcome him on the birthday, the anniversary of the great uh, Irish saint, some 1,500 years almost uh, since his death. That friendly welcome from President Eisenhower struck the keynote of the American people's welcome for the first President of Ireland to visit their country. During his visit, the President was honoured by an invitation to address Congress. This is the first occasion on which a President of Ireland has addressed the Congress of the United States. It symbolises in a striking way the enduring friendship and close kinship which exists between our two peoples. That friendship and that kinship will be the main themes of my few remarks here today. But first, you will forgive me if I say a few personal words of thanks. My own public career is now drawing to its close. It has been a long career, extending in different forms over a period of more than 50 years some of them spent here in Washington. The invitation to address you comes as the climax of my term of service and is among the proudest experience of my life. I am profoundly grateful for your invitation. It is as representing the people of Ireland that you, representing the people of America, have invited me to address you here. It was a pleasant and happy memory at the close of a memorable public career. A little later, President O'Kelly's second term of office came to an end, and he was succeeded as President of Ireland by Eamon de Valera. Here it comes. The result. Quicker than I thought. Patrick Lynch, KC, 2,035 votes. Eamon de Valera, 5,010 votes. The date was June the 23rd, 1917, the date of the Clare election. It was, perhaps even more truly than Easter 1916, the real and significant starting point of Eamon de Valera's career in Irish public life. In Easter week, he had been battalion commandant of the 3rd Battalion, fighting in Boland's Mills. He had been condemned to death, but that death sentence had been commuted to one of life imprisonment. From the May of 1916 to the June of 1917, he had been in English jails in Dartmoor, Maidstone, Lewis, Pentonville. When, with the last remaining prisoners, he had been released, a phase in his life seemed to have ended. But it was an end and a beginning. It was an end and a beginning in many ways. Sinn Féin had won an election in Roscommon, 
and in Longford they had had another victory by 30-odd votes. But the old Irish Parliamentary Party hadn't come to an end yet. And now here was an election in Clare to be fought by the men who had come out of jail after their part in the Easter Rising. Which was it to be? The old Ireland or the new? Was the struggle for Irish freedom to be fought in parliamentary debate and manoeuvre in the British House of Commons? Or was the basis of the future struggle to be the proclamation of Easter 1916, a basis of severance and sovereignty, an end and a beginning? Perhaps it was neither end nor beginning, but just part of the inevitable historical pattern, the pattern woven in the years of military struggle for independence, in cleavage on the issue of the treaty, in the growth and development of a state. In the making of that pattern, Eamon de Valera has played a leading part, both at home and abroad. Abroad? You mean at the League of Nations? There's a description of de Valera presiding at the 1932 meeting of the Assembly of the League of Nations in a book by the American writer Mary C. Bromwich. This is what she says. It was the turn of Ireland's representative to preside over the session, and immediately upon his arrival he had to take the chair amidst a company of expert international statesmen. The opening speech which the League Secretariat had prepared, as was customary for his presiding officer, was put aside by de Valera, and he chose his own words. Unless the delegates there assembled were ready to pledge the use of force against any violation of world peace, the very existence of the League, he predicted, was at stake. The delegates listened, as they had not expected to listen, to this gauche-looking man, this insular, black-suited messiah. His fearsome reputation as a revolutionary was belied by his measured logic, by his practical assessment of the future. There wasn't much applause for that departure from League protocol and custom. Stony silence is how one of the news agencies described its reception by the representatives of the world's nations. But the newspapers seem to have been less distressed than the delegates were at this forthright criticism of the League's efforts to maintain world peace. What matters enormously is that someone in authority at Geneva should pass on these criticisms, speaking with no cotton wool in his mouth. For once, at least, the world will be inclined to applaud Mr. de Valera. It is a strange piece of irony which introduces Mr. de Valera in the character of a critic of the inadequate vigour of the League of Nations. Geneva, stunned by his refusal to repeat the customary rigmarole of pious platitudes drafted for him. Looking back over the chaos of a world war, the inadequacies of the League of Nations may seem far away. But in the chorus of world press approval which greeted de Valera's action, an article in the Neue Zürcher Zeitung very aptly puts that action in the pattern of events which began to emerge from the devastated streets of the Dublin of 1916. Eamon de Valera is probably the first president of the Council and Assembly of the League who has heard sentence of death passed upon him, which is perhaps still, as it was in Stendhal's time, the only proof that a man cannot be bought. I heard this man eleven years ago speaking in the Doyle, which was then still an assembly of rebel conspirators, a good third of whom could share the tragic honour that an English court-martial had accorded him. Now, as then... He speaks in a voice that has no seducingly melodious tones, but is matter-of-fact and earnest, with a much greater restraint in expression than might be expected of the adventurous leader, the conspirator and agitator, who has waged war against the might of England with such simplicity of feeling as has been shown by no other living man, not even Gandhi. 
It was during those days, prior to the outbreak of the Second World War, that the Irish Constitution of 1937 was enacted. In a broadcast to the people of Ireland and to the Irish in America, Mr. de Valera had this to say of the Constitution. In that Constitution, the traditional aspirations of our people for national independence, national unity, and the unfettered control of their domestic and foreign affairs have been set as the basic principles of the law by which we are henceforth to be governed. Within that Constitution, the unity of the national territory can be restored. Within it, the people's right to enter into, determine, or maintain any relationship with other nations which may be open to them can be freely exercised. Within it, any man or group of men commanding the support of the majority in the national parliament can legally carry through any program in the domain of our internal or external relations which he or they may conceive to be in the national interest. Looking back over the years, it is easy to see again the major events which played so large a part in the making of the pattern of Irish life in our times. The restoration to Ireland of the naval ports of Cove, Beerhaven and Lough Swilly in 1938. The determination of all parties in Ireland to remain neutral during the Second World War. The dangers of wartime days in which the threat of invasion was never far away. There is one other memory of Mr de Valera in those days which will occur to many. On Sunday, May the 13th, 1945, Mr Churchill was broadcasting his victory message to the world. Rather unexpectedly, he suddenly turned to talk of Ireland and of Ireland's neutrality. He said that Ireland's neutrality had enabled hostile aircraft and submarines to close Britain's western approaches, and that although there were times during the days of war when it seemed that Britain's survival could be assured only by the violent seizure of Ireland's southern ports, Britain had magnanimously refrained from violating Ireland's neutrality. That was a speech which caused resentment in Ireland. Three days later, Mr de Valera went to Radio Erin to broadcast a reply, and all Ireland listened in. Certain newspapers have been very persistent in looking for my answer to Mr Churchill's recent broadcast. I know the kind of answer I am expected to make. I know the answer that first springs to the lips of every man of Irish blood who heard or read that speech no matter in what circumstances or in what part of the world he found himself. I know the reply I would have given a quarter of a century ago. But I have deliberately decided that this is not the reply I shall make tonight. I shall strive not to be guilty of adding any fuel to the flames of hatred and passion, which have continued to be fed, promise to burn up whatever is left by the war of decent human feeling in Europe. Allowances can be made for Mr. Churchill's statement, however unworthy, in the first flush of his victory. No such excuse can be found for me in this quiet atmosphere. There are, however, some things which it is my duty to say, some things which it is essential to say. I shall try to say them as dispassionately as I can. Mr. Churchill makes it clear that in certain circumstances he would have violated our neutrality 
and that he would justify his action by Britain's necessity. It seems strange to me that Mr. Churchill does not see that this, if accepted, would mean that Britain's necessity would become a moral code, and that when this necessity was sufficiently great, other people's rights were not to count. It is quite true that other great powers believe in this same code in their own regard and have behaved in accordance with it. That is precisely why we have the disastrous successions of wars. World War number one, World War number two, and shall it be World War number three? Surely Mr. Churchill must see that if his contention be admitted in our regard, a like justification can be framed for similar acts of aggression elsewhere, and no small nation adjoining a great power could ever hope to be permitted to go its own way in peace. It is indeed fortunate that Britain's necessity did not reach the point when Mr. Churchill would have acted. All credit to him that he successfully resisted the temptation, which I have no doubt many times assailed him in his difficulties, and to which I freely admit many leaders might have easily succumbed. It is indeed hard for the strong to be just to the weak, but acting justly always has its rewards. The moment of resentment which called forth that quiet rejoinder has long since passed into history. Since then there have been other moments which turned the spotlight of public attention on Eamon de Valera, Moments in and out of office, at home and abroad, as in this broadcast to America on St. Patrick's Day, 1947. We here chose unmistakably the democratic way of life based upon the will of the majority. And our entire state organization bears visibly upon it all the characteristic marks of democracy indicated by the president. Free institutions, representative government, free elections with guarantees of individual liberty, freedom of speech and religion, and freedom from political oppression. We made our choice some years ago with the conscious purpose of securing that the dignity and freedom of the individual may be assured, true social order attained, the unity of our country restored and concord established with other nations. These are the words of the preamble of our Constitution. Seven years ago today, Eamon de Valera began his first term of office as President of Ireland, an office which, in its dignity and function, is removed from the conflicts and tensions of politics in the everyday sense of the word. But its duties still belong to the political order in perhaps a deeper sense, for the President embodies in his person the sovereignty of the people, and as first citizen he must represent his fellow citizens on occasions of national and international significance. The presidency of Eamon de Valera has been marked by many such occasions, some at least of which will long remain in the memory of the Irish people. There was a day of high honour in March 1962, St. Patrick's Day, when the national celebrations of the 15th centenary of the death of St. Patrick ended with a state visit by the President and Mrs. de Valera to Pope John the Twenty-Third. 
To the spiritual and historical significance of this event, a very moving human quality was added by the warmth and simplicity of the beloved Pope's welcome to his guests. Another year, another visit. This time the President was Ireland's host to one of the most welcome visitors ever to come among us. Another President, the young head of a great state who paid this tribute to Eamon de Valera. Spreading over the period of a half a century, he has expressed in his own life and in the things that he stood for, the very best of Western thought and, equally important, Western action. The tragedy that occurred a year after that memorable occasion summoned President de Valera once again to represent the Irish nation overseas when he took his place among the mourning nations at the funeral of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. But there was to be a further visit to the United States of America. On the 28th of May, 1964, the President of Ireland addressed a joint session of the two Houses of Congress. It was a moment of no little glory in the history of the two nations, and for the President himself, a moment of joy. Mr. Speaker, I would like to confess and confess freely that this is an outstanding day in my own life. To see recognized as I have here in full the recognition of the rights of the Irish people and the independence of the Irish people in a way that was not at all possible 45 years ago. I have longed to come back and say this to you and through you to the people as a whole. There remained, as President de Valera reminded his audience, the problem of a cruel partition which diminished the significance of his presence. This was a cause for deep regret, but more important, a reason for continued endeavour, fired by hope. I salute here in prospect the representative of Ireland who may be permitted to address you as I have been permitted and who will be able with full heart joyfully announce to you that our several country has been reunited and that the last source of enmity between the British and Irish peoples has disappeared and that at last we can be truly friends. That our approach to Irish unity must be based on hope and on love was stressed once again by the President when, at Roger Casement's grave in Glasnevin, on a day of snow and wind and bitter cold, he spoke with warmth of Casement's love for Ulster, his own province. We love the province of Ulster because of the part the people of Ulster had played throughout Irish history. And he loved it also because he knew that each one of us, next to all the province, our own native province, we love that province best. And as we stand here, each one of us will resolve that we should do everything to work so that the people of that province and ourselves may be united in cooperation, that we may all vie with each other in loving this land for which so many sacrifices have been made throughout the centuries. 
a pride in the past that seeks not to divide but to reconcile was again the President's theme on one of the simplest and most moving occasions during this year's celebrations of the Jubilee of 1916. At the opening of the museum at Kilmainham Jail, he recalled the names of those who since 1798 had given witness there. This then is a hallowed place and I hope that tens of thousands of our people will come here during the years to visit it, to draw inspiration for it. We do this not for the purpose of continuing bitterness, but we wish to have places like this preserved by the memory of the men who suffered, the women who suffered here preserved. The reason we wanted is that it might inspire our people, make them remember that the great efforts that have been made throughout the centuries to preserve this nation and to encourage them from the efforts that may be necessary uh, to preserve the nation. And as I already have said, in order that they may exalt this nation amongst the nations of the earth as the men of 1916 wanted it to be. Eamon de Valera, a man ever conscious of Ireland's past, has kept his heart and mind firmly fixed on Ireland's future. On his 80th birthday, when asked what future he would wish for his country, he answered in a simple sentence. Well, the future I would look, hope for would be that we would continue to be true to ourselves and be worthy of a very great past, and if we do that, we'll certainly have nothing to daunt us in the future. Today, seven years after his first inauguration, the voice of Eamon de Valera was heard taking and subscribing for a second time his declaration of office as President of Ireland. Dia de Mastura, Agas de Machutach. Dia de Mastura, Agas de Machutach.